Hello, and welcome to the latest RevDem Rule of Law podcast. My name is Oliver Garner. Today we will be hosting two guests, Andras Kadar and Mato Padari, to discuss the work of the Hungarian Helsinki Committee. Andras Kadar is an attorney at law and co-chair of the Hungarian Helsinki Committee. Amongst other engagements and positions, he is the Hungarian member of the European Network of Legal Experts in the Non-Discrimination Field. Mato Padavi is the other co-chair of the committee, and she also co-leads the Recharging Advocacy for Rights in Europe programme. Previously, she has been a policy leader for at the School of Transnational Governance in Florence. Andres and Mata, thank you so much for joining us today. To start our conversation, could you provide some information to our listeners on the work of the Hungarian Helsinki Committee and the experience of acting as a civil society organization promoting democracy and rule of law during the Orban regime? Perhaps I'll start and, and, and invite Andres to, to, um, to supplement so the Hungarian Helsinki Committee, many people think, belongs to an international network of human rights organizations. And in fact, this is true, but not in the formal sense. The Helsinki Committee in Hungary, as all the other Helsinki organizations around Europe, are all independent national uh, civil society organizations. Our organization grew out of the 1980s and the group of political dissidents founded it when um, in 1989 it became a formal organization. It was one of the first that was registered in Hungary. And at the time, not um, having a, a law and associations meant that the status was actually um, as a political organization. This is, um, of course, uh, almost historical. And uh, since the mid-90s, the Helsinki Committee has been um, uh, one of the the, the, the biggest um, Hungarian human rights organizations. It's been providing legal assistance, doing strategic litigation, both in Hungary and also in um, human rights courts in Europe and even um, globally. We have been doing a lot of monitoring, advocacy and research and traditionally, the first two fields of our of our involvement uh, were refugee protection and looking at how law enforcement and criminal justice live up to their to the human rights standards. Since 2010, however, um, an additional field of, of of our focus has developed which is focusing on the rule of law, the civil society space, the idea that there should be checks and balances in the Hungarian constitutional framework. I think it, it, it was a very important realization. I, I think that there was a certain degree of, of uh, naivete or optimism uh, in the period between uh, 94 and 2010, we when we had an actually well not optimal and uh, not ideal but uh, fundamentally functioning rule of law system with institutions that made it possible for us to uh, provide rights protection uh, in in our in our fields and so we kind of took took it for granted you know the end of history optimism. We took it for granted that that institutional and cultural democratic infrastructure is there. And within that infrastructure, we provided 
assistance and we try to improve the situation uh, for our specific target groups. And only actually uh, after 2010 and this very incremental but very conscious uh, process of democratic backsliding started, did we realize along with a lot of NGO partners, with a lot of politicians, that what we took for granted is 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 something that we have to protect very adamantly. Uh, it's it, it is the rights protection infrastructure of checks and balances and the rule of law culture itself, and it also resulted in a change uh, in our focus in terms of activities. Before that, we focused more on you know the legal parts, and while we are still doing a lot of litigation, we realize that when we talk about the fundamental framework and structure, we have to uh, put more emphasis on communication, making our constituents and uh, even our adversaries uh, understand, you know, why all these values that might seem so abstract at first uh, sight are so important. So there was a lot, improvement related to our communications activities and also advocacy came to the forefront, especially international advocacy, because when your possibilities within the borders of the country are reduced, you have to start look, you know, for alternatives and international opinion, EU institutions, those are things that, you know, uh, um, come into mind and come in handy in such situations when within the borders, your, your rights protection uh, possibilities are reduced. So there was a shift in both topic and actually there was a shift in relation to uh, the tools that we have been using. That's fascinating to hear about that shift. And I think those are lessons that would stretch beyond Hungary into other countries in Europe and beyond. And you mentioned in your answer there, Martha, that there's some well, the conception that the committee is part of an international body and you mentioned some of the history. And I think some of our listeners may indeed be wondering why the name is the Helsinki Committee. So I understand this has some special significance regarding the history of human rights in the Soviet bloc during the Cold War. So could you explain a little bit of this history to our listeners? Yes, this is definitely something that I think is super relevant today. It's very interesting, not only for history for present day too, but still uh, for the general public, the Helsinki Final Act that has inspired not only um, the OSCE to spring into to life, but also a very vibrant civil society network is not so well known. So much so that quite often, Hungarians who call our office asking for help or legal assistance uh, think that we have some uh, connection to the Finnish capital that we speak Finnish or that our head office is in in Finland. This is quite amusing. But the but the origins of of both the civil society movement and the whole Helsinki process, of course, are very serious, and they spring from from the Cold War from the mid-1970s and where uh, at the midst of the, or the height of the Cold War, um, the, the opposing blocs had sat down and had agreed on some maybe trivial or very fundamental principles of, of dialogue. And a big 
basket, a big batch of, of these principles concerned what was then called the human dimension, but I would call it human rights. Mm -hmm. So human rights and democracy and democratic institutions. And the, the, the international uh, agreements that were then brokered, the Helsinki Final Act actually inspired citizens in the Soviet bloc, in the Soviet Union, to take these rights that their governments had signed on to uh, for real and to start using them. So the Mount Moscow Helsinki group, uh, a very courageous group of mostly natural scientists, was born and soon enough after their activities reporting on human rights violations, political repression in Russia, they faced very severe sanctions and many of them had to, to, to um, leave the Soviet Union, their home, went into exile, others were um, imprisoned. Still their, their courage inspired many, um, many, many citizens around the world and um, political dissidents in the Eastern Bloc and also citizens in Western European countries who continued to be the, the receivers of information from human rights dissidents and would take this information on and convey it to their own national governments and raise the issue of human rights dissidents and political repression with their foreign ministries, lobbying them so that they would then bring it back to the counterpart governments in the Helsinki dialogue process. So the idea that um, human rights are not an internal matter, that they are an international matter, that it is also for citizens to, to care about what's going on in other countries. And we have a right and a responsibility to uphold the human rights framework across borders individually is I think very connected to, to the Helsinki civil society movement. Helsinki Watch was born of this movement and, and so were um, quite uh, strong organizations in mostly Northern Europe. They all exist today and we cooperate with them closely. And Helsinki Watch in the meantime, of course, broadened its geographic remit and it's called Human Rights Watch now, mm -hmm. a much bigger organization than, than the 40 uh, plus uh, colleagues we have here in Budapest, but it's still very much based on the same idea. and. The period that Andras talked about, uh, which 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 was perhaps a, a short, uh, a promising period of of gradual development of human rights in Hungary, was very much based on the idea that we should have dialogue, also not just transnationally, but also with local authorities. And so much of our work was, I think, very much focused on on reporting. Um, human rights issues and making suggestions for improvements um, to the Hungarian authorities. So we had at that um, for a very, very long time from the mid nineties until 2017, uh, access to closed institutions such as prisons, police, jails, immigration, detention centers, where we were allowed to go in and then we made recommendations to the relevant authorities of course, many times they didn't take it up, but we did have an opportunity for this kind of dialogue 
which which over time became something that was accepted, that was um, in a way uh, became a, a part of of working with civil society, a very important part of democracy. And then in 2017, all these uh, really um, important, sometimes pioneering agreements we had with the law enforcement agencies had to be terminated for political reasons. Today in 2023, I think the idea of the Helsinki process is somehow perhaps more understandable as we see um, the the many of the characteristics of the mid seventies coming back. I think it's an important stra- strategic lesson that we can draw from from that time period when basically the, the basic concept was behind the Helsinki, the Moscow Helsinki groups activities as that if the country the Soviet Union signed up for certain values. We should actually act as if these values uh, could be kind of demanded from the government. Uh, and, and obviously the risks that we are facing are nothing compared to what they were facing at the time. But to some extent, our strategies are rooted in that approach. So if they're, you know, if Hungary has signed up for the Geneva Convention, then it is our uh, role, task, and also right to call the Hungarian government upon actually complying with those. Uh, so this kind of <laughs> this kind of let's let's pretend that we you know live in a in a in a in a country that that actually respects the obligations it undertook. I think it is a viable and important strategy for us till today. So in that regard. You know we are carrying on with with those activities. Anders, you mentioned there that the risks are very different today than they were during the Cold War, but we do, of course, have a situation where Russia's aggression in Ukraine means that this dialogue that was the goal between West and East is probably in a worse state today than it was at the time. And on that topic of the war in Ukraine, the CEU Democracy Institute has recently published a working paper by Balint Madlovich and Balint Magyar that makes the argument about how Viktor Orban has tried to maintain Hungary's pivot role between the West and Russia, between the EU and Russia, despite the war in Ukraine. In your work with the committee, have you seen any policies of the government that would support this argument? For example, have you seen a lack of support within Hungary for Ukrainian refugees? So Hungary is quite well known. It's infamous for its very hostile policies on migration, or on on excluding refugees, on excluding even access to international protection, both in the physical sense of erecting fences and denying access at the borders, push violent pushbacks at the borders, but also in the legal sense of making it basically by and large impossible to even apply for asylum mm. within the country. And so when when um, on February twenty. 20- 4th of 2022, over a year ago now, um, the Russia invaded Ukraine. We were um, very worried that this might actually apply, this policy that has been such a stable hallmark of the, of the Orban government since 2015, that this might apply to refugees fleeing Ukraine. And we were very happy to see that it didn't. So just in the very first few days, 
I think the Hungarian government should be given credit for opening its borders, for allowing um, everybody basically to come in and for very uh, uh, for for also providing a fast uh, legal response of, of of giving temporary protection to people who are fleeing Ukraine. Now, of course, this is very important, but then there is many other aspects to actually providing effective protection to refugees. Uh, the dual system still is very much in place. So if you're um, coming, fleeing the conflict in Ukraine, most um, individuals will not have issues coming into Hungary. But from that moment, I think they face a lot of obstacles for people who are not fleeing that conflict. There is no way into Hungary. There is no way to access protection. So for those who are who are um, fleeing the, the the war in Ukraine, what we've seen is that the Hungarian government, compared to those in the in the region of, uh, in, in the Central European region, over time could have put a lot more effort into making it a smoother process to access protection. So of course, in the first few days, this was a, an, an absolutely unexpected emergency. So you don't have the same level of expectation on day one of this of this refugee crisis than say on day 30 or in the fourth or fifth um, month. And while other member uh, states of the EU in the region were, I think, trying to find um, ways to to receive with a very warm welcome by citizens and also by authorities, the refugees, the Hungarian citizens really did, I think, a great job. And it was very visible and it was very tangible. But the Hungarian authorities did not do a great job and couldn't come up with a you know uh, smooth application processes, couldn't find translators, couldn't make it easily, effectively accessible in practice, the, the legal opportunities. This um, was of course these practical issues or obstacles were coupled, I think, with a with a a very distinct um, uh, position of the Hungarian government vis-à-vis Russia, mm-hmm. and this has uh, led, I think, to to um, a lot of refugees from from Ukraine moving on further mm-hmm. to other countries. We have now, it's uh, the number of people who stay in Hungary and enjoy temporary protection, um, the, the legal status that was opened up for, for um, refugees from Ukraine. The number is about 30,000 people, which is, of course, far less than, um, than most of the Central Europeans, even if, if you look at the Czechia, for example, there is a much higher number of, of refugees. And... Now that um, the initial uh, opportunities for Hungarian citizens, volunteers to assist have been uh, almost closed down and and this institutional state approach has taken over to the reception system, refugees are pretty much invisible in Hungary. So the the sense of solidarity, the public support is also um, uh, at a much lower level. There are... uh, 
big charity organizations which have uh, been receiving a lot of public funds, also European Union funds and, and international support, but also Hungarian government funding to take care of the of, of refugees um, in terms of, of reception, shelter. Much of these services are very uneven. And at the same time, I think the, the idea that we have refugees from the war next door and we have a responsibility and 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 uh, you know a, a moral and also legal responsibility to to welcome them to make them feel safe is very much absent from from the government's narrative in fact from from the social narrative too so our office in budapest has ukrainian flags uh, um draped on on its balconies but otherwise if you walk around town you don't see uh many you hardly see any flags uh expressing solidarity with ukraine and i think this is very much reflected in in the government's um refugee policy too so it's 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 a little bit out of sight out of mind and what i can add is just to give an example so if you are a, a for instance a russian dissenter who fled to ukraine before the war and then you flee to Hungary uh, because of the war, you don't have the possibility to ask for asylum. Well, you're not a Ukrainian citizen, so this kind of temporary protection does not apply to you. So you may want to actually apply for asylum, but this is something that you cannot do within Hungary because of the uh, peculiarities of the Hungarian asylum system, you would be required to travel either to Kiev or to Belgrade uh, to ask the Hungarian embassies there to allow you to enter Hungary, re-enter Hungary, so that you can actually submit an asylum application. I think it needs no explanation how bizarre and how absurd the system is. Also, if you're a third country national coming from Ukraine, you are not entitled to uh, different forms of, well, limited help that, that is available uh, for, uh, for, for the Ukrainian citizens. So this kind of general hostility uh, towards asylum seekers and the elimination, the very conscious elimination of the of the integration system or the system of support uh, takes its toll in this in this particular situation. And the other thing I think that is worth mentioning is a kind of double speak that we can experience. Uh, Hungarian government complies with uh, its obligations under EU law as far as temporary protection is concerned. Also, well to to to, to a, a relatively greater extent than not also hungary although reluctantly and not in all the cases uh, actually votes with the majority as regards sanctions so when you look at uh, what the hungarian government is doing from this uh, kind of strictly technical procedural point of view and when you look at what the hungarian government is doing from outside, it looks not very committed, but it looks kind of okay. But when you look at, you know, the 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 communication of government mouthpiece media in Hungary, 
and it is it is it is a well known and I think uh, undoubtable fact that the pro government media's messages are actually uh, written in uh, in political circles. Then you see a completely different picture, and then you see Russian propaganda being actually emanated from 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 all these is, is talking heads that are important supporters of the government. So if you look at the content of messaging for domestic <coughs> purposes, you see a completely different picture and you see a lot of uh, themes from, from Russian propaganda, which actually might be part of the reason why you cannot see the flags, why you see uh, the willingness to help uh, to be actually decreasing in Hungary. So there is this kind of dual game that the Hungarian government is playing for the domestic and for uh, the international audiences. That's a very nuanced picture of the situation that I'm sure will be incredibly informative for our listeners. And it's clear from your answers that as an organization, the Helsinki Committee is very well plugged into developments on the ground in Hungary. So could you provide an update for our audience, especially for those who may be more Brussels focused, on where exactly Hungary stands in relation to its compliance with the rule of law budget conditionality regulation, and also the milestones in order to access the recovery and resilience plan? Well, I think we'd really like to give you a good answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but very, very few people actually know. Mm. One of the one of the interesting features of this whole process is that the negotiations are very much happening behind closed doors. There is very little transparency of the process. So uh, I understand that uh, this this discretion is important to to build up trust, perhaps, between the Hungarian government and the Commission. But it also means that much of the the legislation on very fundamental issues relating to the rule of law is being negotiated with with um, commission officials rather than in the in the in, in public view. Uh, so it's hard to say where things stand. I think what we have um, and where, of course, the Hungarian Helsinki Committee is following this process extremely closely, and we have provided a lot of information to the public, to member states, to the commission, to anybody who is willing to listen and, and read our, read our um, uh, updates about the problems that um, the rule of law, um, conditionality and, and, and uh, the suspension of funds should address, our positions on how these problems should be solved and our analysis on the progress that is happening in Hungary. And what I can give you now as an update is um, that we were expecting a lot of uh, legislative proposals to be submitted to the Hungarian parliament, particularly um, focusing on the independence of the judiciary. There was a very big package of, uh, of, of, of legal changes that were produced by the government and they were available for public consultation, something that was both a a stipulation of the agreement uh, of the milestones, but also something that was quite novel, uh, not something that has happened a lot in the last few years in Hungary. We commented on that together with our NGO partners. And since then, I'm not aware 
at least there's not been much public information about when will this um, this package be submitted to Parliament and what are the changes that the government has perhaps uh, taken up from our suggestions. So there is certainly a delay. It's clear uh, that the money, the 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 funds uh, are there's a lot of money being uh, frozen and suspended. So it's it's altogether about 30 billion euros. Um, and it's clear, I think, that in the next few months, Hungary probably won't see most of that. If there is some amount coming um, to, to Hungary from the Commission, that uh, would uh, mean that there was significant and real progress on the, particularly on the independence of the judiciary. But of course, there are other milestones that require an anti-corruption uh, system to be set up or improved. Much of what we've seen, and I'm sure Andesh has a lot of, of details on this, but I think much of what we've seen is um, that the, the milestones or the, the implementation, the delivery is half-hearted. They um, will not make a huge dent in this illiberal structure. The changes they can bring are important, but they probably will not reverse the course that the Hungarian government um, is on. And this is, of course, um, I think, uh, uh, something that we have to accept. The EU toolbox is not going to fix all the all the problems the the conditionality uh, regulation and also the super milestones as they relate to even the recovery resilience plan or even the enabling horizontal conditions are are unable to cover the entire spectrum of all the human rights and fundamental constitutional democracy issues that arise in Hungary. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to see that. So what Marta mentions is kind of half-heartedness of compliance. So basically, I think there are two strategies that the government has been using. One is this kind of facade compliance. So they are trying to comply with the requirements on paper in a way that you know, kind of disturbs the functioning, the operation of the system as little as possible. Just to give you two brief examples, the board of trustees of these public uh, trust funds that run universities in Hungary. Now there are talks about like politicians having to go, ministers having to go from these boards. Uh, but what we don't hear anything about is what is happening to, to the rights, the prerogatives of these boards, which uh, now at the moment can have very uh, significant impact on, on the functioning of university. And the, the problem is not only whether a minister can be in on the board or not, but the problem is whether a board consisting of people appointed by the government uh, could actually uh, interfere with uh, the freedom of academia, the freedom of university. Uh, so these are two actual examples. I don't want to go into further nuances, but basically this is one thing that we see, this kind of 
let's comply, but let's comply in a way that doesn't really interfere with how we operate the system. And the other thing is, which shows that there is no culture change, is that in areas which are not concerned by the milestones or other requirements, we see the very same way of operation. For instance, when it comes to the curbing of teachers' right to strike, uh, when it comes to cracking down on the Hungarian medical chamber, when it steps up against the government, and then the you know the uh, then 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 a law is passed in two days that uh, changes the status of the Hungarian medical chamber. This is happening while the discussions are still on. So where you don't have a very specific requirement from the EU. On the, in those areas, you, you see this continuation of the same illiberal practices and the complete... Perceived compliance can be in practice as a result of your local knowledge. And you've reminded me, actually, that the last time I was in Budapest, I, I saw a protest by teachers, uh, probably in relation to this curbing of the right to strike that you mentioned. That's something that we don't see being reported as much, with all the focus being on more on EU issues. For our final question you're both lawyers by training who work in the civil society engagement sphere following the failure of the Petr Markezai electoral bid last year to be prime minister do you believe that the solution to rule of law backsliding can be found through legal adjudication at the national and the transnational level or do you think that it has to be through political contestation and is there perhaps a means of marrying these two different fields, especially with regard to upcoming elections, such as in Poland this year? Well, uh, I think it's a it's a it's a tough question, uh, and of course, for us as lawyers, it's pretty painful to see what has happened to the legal system. But you know, the reason why I went into law was that I saw law as a as a means of you know, kind of evening out the playing field when you have someone very powerful against someone who lacks that kind of power, the state against the individual. So, I mean, this is this is this is why I went into law, and this is why I started to work for for the Hungarian Helsinki Committee. This kind of power asymmetry, I saw law as the way to kind of counterbalance offset that. And what we see because of the specificities of the Hungarian constitutional situation, namely that the governing party has a constitutional majority, so they can change the constitution anytime they want, and they have been doing so. Uh, it makes it very difficult to grasp with, you know, the grasp the uh, the problems through legal means because. Uh, whenever you know you go and win a case in court, they can change the legislation or what has happened actually regarding to teachers' protests and strikes, they can change the law while a court case is you know actually going on. So um, and 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 from the formal point of view, you it's very hard for you as a lawyer to grasp this. Another factor that you have to take into account is the, the capturing of the courts, which is an ongoing procedure, not as aggressively, not as conspicuously, blatantly as in Poland, but it's still going on and it has progressed. Still, I don't think that we, 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 we need to give up the legal route. One reason is that actually 
we can take legal action outside the borders of uh, the country. We can take cases to Strasbourg and we can take cases, although a bit more difficult to do so, before the Luxembourg Court of the European Union. So in, in the legal arena, you still have this possibility of channeling politically sensitive cases outside of the country. The other thing I think why I don't think we should give up the legal response is because uh, one of the key messages, and this is exactly related to this constitutional situation of the present government, that we do everything lawfully. You know, everything is, no one is above the law. <laughs> of course, we can change the law if it's needed, but, you know, we are like a legally based, it's, it's rooted in, in this kind of uh, 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 valueless legalism, the arguments that, that the Hungarian government has been using. And for that reason, actually legal losses really caught into the flesh of this system. They mm. are more difficult to reach than before, but sometimes this kind of, uh, these kind of losses for the system uh, kind of undermine this argumentation that here everything goes uh, according to the laws, because when you look at those laws from the light or through the light of you know international human rights norms or, or other international values, then you can show that well, this is this this might not be the case. However, uh, I think it is very important, and because of the same legalism and because of the same constitutional situation, to also focus on advocacy, communication, and the more uh, political uh, tools that that are there for the friends of democracy. So my. Basically, my conclusion is we shouldn't give up on the law mm -hmm. just because we have a situation like this, but we really have to start using other, other tools as well. To add to this, I think it's important also to, to continue to use litigation and legal tools because this is these, these concerns about the Hungarian regime's rule of law backsliding are not political concerns. This is not about you know, ideology, differences in ideologies. This is about the core values that the European Union must cherish and uphold because otherwise we lose trust among member states, among uh, citizens, among companies. We lose trust in, in the European project. And I think it's in this respect extremely interesting to see how the the Commission's case that, uh, against Hungary over the LGBTQI mm. propaganda law will unfold because it's the very first time that, that the European Commission is is basing its claim also on on the on 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 Article Two of the Treaty on European Union, so saying that the core European values are being uh, infringed by, by, the, by the pervasive anti-discriminatory nature of the Hungarian legislation. This, is, this could advance, I think, the, the European project um, in a way that was perhaps unexpected even a few years ago. And without using legal tools, without using um, legal arguments, this won't 
happen. Mm. So politics are, of course, very important in and and surely shape um, societies and the EU maybe um, much faster than than the legal approach. But we need to to use the legal tools to underscore the idea that there's a very strong legal foundation to the European Union. This applies no matter which member state there is. It applies to Hungary, to the Hungarian government's actions just as much as to any other EU member states. I think that's a great point to end on because at RevDem and at the DI, we will most definitely be following that case with a lot of interest. So look forward to hopefully continuing that conversation, perhaps even in person in Budapest. Thank you so much, Andras and Marta, for being on the podcast today and for enlightening our readers and our listeners on the work of the Hungarian Helsinki Committee. I'd encourage our audience to follow uh, RevDem on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook to uh, continue participating in conversations on these topics. Thank you so much again to both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Oliver.